You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Last week, we visited the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul took us all the way into eternity past. In fact, he declared that God chose us in his Son before the foundation of the world. Now this morning, the Apostle John is going to take us all the way into eternity future. When time will be no more, we're going to be looking at that most, I believe, frightening of all scriptures in the Bible. Unfortunately, for the vast majority of people, since God created Adam and Eve, they will find themselves standing guilty before the most formidable judge in all the universe, while the rest of us who make up God's redeemed children will be entering that new heaven and that new earth as well as that celestial city called the New Jerusalem. And we're going to enjoy that for the eternal age of ages. There's an old hymn that uh, I remember singing as a boy. And that goes back a few years. You don't hear this hymn, hymn very much anymore. But I remember seeing it. The hymn puts us in time right now where we find ourselves presently living and then carries us to when all time has run out. Listen to what the songwriter writes in this song. Some of you will remember it. He writes, Almost persuaded, now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go, Spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. Almost persuaded, come, come today. Almost persuaded, turn not away. Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts so dear. Oh, Wanderer, come. And now the songwriter takes you into eternity future when time for you has run out. Almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost, but lost. Almost, but lost. When you open your Bible to Genesis, the first book of your Bible, you need not do that. We're immediately introduced to God and told He is the creator of this universe as well as everything in it, including Adam and Eve. And then Genesis tells you and me about the fall of man into sin and death that has been God's judgment upon us because we're all guilty sinners. In fact, the Bible says we're born in sin. But from Genesis chapter 3 and progressing through the rest of the Bible, God reveals to us His redemption that He would and did provide for us through His Son. That wonderful redemption would provide complete forgiveness of all our sin. We saw already sung about that this morning. 
We'd also provide reconciliation back to God, giving us eternal life as well as fellowship with him. But it would cost God the death of his son, who would go to the cross where God would place on all, all our sin upon him and cause him to bear all our deserved punishment. But on that cross, his son would make full payment in our behalf, and God would be completely satisfied. In other words, God's justice would be fully met, and you and I, the guilty sinners, could go free. But not only would God completely pardon us, no, He did far more. He would make you and me His sons. He would make us His children, born anew, born again. That, folks, is what we call the gospel. That's the good news. That is the message of your Bible from Genesis through Revelation. But, sad to say, unfortunately, most people expend this brief vapor of their earthly lives, either deliberately choosing not to respond to God's offer of salvation provided in His Son, or they go through life never even hearing about that offer and why they desperately need to respond to it. And every one of these folks going all the way back to Adam and Eve will find themselves very soon standing before the most formidable judge in all the universe. Almost, but lost. I want to go to the most solemn passage in Scripture, and I want you to turn there. Revelation chapter 20, you don't hear a lot of preaching on this. Verses 11 through 15, and by the way, I'm going through a lot of scripture, but if you can't keep up with that, it should be behind me on the wall, and that will help you out. You may want to write it down in your outline. Let me read verses 11 through 15 of Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We're going to go through these five verses by asking and answering a series of five questions, and you have that, as I said, in your outline. And our first question is this. What happened to the heaven and the earth? What happened to the heaven and the earth? Well, let's take the Apostle John's testimony first. In verse 11, he writes... Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. This book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible, 
is the capstone of your Bible as well as God's final revelation to you and me. Let me help you to follow this sequence because the events come one after another here that led us up to verse 11 of chapter 20 where the Apostle John sees this great white throne and the heaven and the earth have fled away and no place is found for them. The next major prophetic event that this world's going to experience is what the Bible calls the rapture of God's church. That rapture is a Latin word. It means to be snatched away. And that's the next prophetic event. Now what's going to happen there is the Lord is going to come back in the air, but he's not going to come to the earth. He's just going to come back in the air. And he's going to bring with him all those believers that came to saving faith since the day of Pentecost after our Lord's resurrection. They've now put their faith in Christ. They died, and they've gone like John and the the apostles and so forth. And even people in this church that we love have belonged to the Lord, and they've passed on, and they're in the presence. Now, they're going, their spirit, they're going to come back with the Lord, and three things are going to happen. Instantly, they're going to receive their glorified body. Secondly is, you and I who remain here in our saved, we're instantly going to receive our glorified body. And thirdly, every single believer throughout the whole world is instantly going to be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord, and then on to heaven we go. That's the next event. Let's hope it happens before I'm through preaching. (laughs) But let's hope that each one of us is ready. That's why this message... Well, what follows that? Right after that, you know the next major event that hits the world because the people, and that'll be the masses of people that are left behind, they will enter into what's called that seven-year tribulation period. And the last three and a half are called the Great Tribulation. That's when God allows Satan to have his hour that he's always wanted. He says, I want control of the whole world. I, don't, I want no interference. He's still going to get some. Because of those 144,000 Jews, they're going to instantly get saved and be the Billy Grahams there, the, if you please, of the seven-year tribulation. So he's going to, still going to have some problems. But he'll finally get his hour. And then we know how that ends because the Lord comes back with you and me, his glorified saints. And when we come back with him, they will, he, they, he will enter into that battle that even the world talks about called Armageddon. And so he will enter into that battle and he will slaughter off all those armies. And then after that, he's going to take the Antichrist and the false prophet. He's going to cast them alive into the lake of fire. And then he's going to take Satan. He's going to bind him because he's not through with him yet. And he's going to cast him into that bottomless pit where he's going to be for about a thousand years. And then you have people after that, the Lord then sets up his reign upon the whole world. And that's what we call that millennial reign, that 1,000 year reign. Millennium means a Latin word again for 1,000. And he's going to reign, but there are going to be people that will get saved during the seven year tribulation period. And they're going to go, some of, many of them will survive, and they will enter into that millennial reign with physical bodies. Now you and I who are redeemed, we're going to have glorified bodies. Also at that time, the Lord is going to raise the Old Testament believers, as well as all those that died during the tribulation that put their faith in Christ. They're going to be raised having, so you have us having glorified bodies, the Old Testament saints have glorified bodies, the tribulation saints have glorified bodies, but you have this other mass of people that have physical bodies that go into the millennium. I believe all of them have put their faith in Christ, and that's why they get to go in. 
But during that time, it'll be an incredible time of bliss throughout the world. Isaiah talks a lot about that and other Old Testament books. And so it says, if you die at 100, you've died like a curse on your life. And so they're going to repopulate the world. Remember now, King Jesus is going to be reigning at that time over the whole world with a rod of iron. But they're going to populate, repopulate the whole world. And most of those people are only going to give feigned obedience to the King Jesus as he's reigning here upon the earth. And so finally it comes time when God says, I have one more task for Satan. So he releases him out of that bottomless pit. And he comes up out of that bottomless pit. And let's read what happens next. Verses 7 through 10. Verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them just consumed them instantly. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Did you get that? This event ends time as we know it. The next thing John records is what we read in verse 11. Then I saw. What did he see? A great white throne to him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. In other words, they completely went out of existence. (laughs) This planet, all planets. Look at the first verse of chapter 21. We'll be looking at that this evening as well. Hope you come back. Then, here we sequence again, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. My. Now let's go to the Apostle Peter's testimony. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. Again, if you do not turn there, you can look behind me on the wall. Here's what Peter writes. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That means unexpectedly. You didn't expect it to happen. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar. I thought that was last night, by the way. (laughs) My. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Going down to verse 12, looking for and hastening the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. This sounds a lot what we just read from the Apostle John when fire came down from heaven and completely consumed all those people that went up against Jerusalem. And the next thing John writes is a complete disappearance of the earth and heaven. I thought it noteworthy to share with you an excerpt from John MacArthur. I'd like to read that to you now. He writes these words. He says, let's go to Peter's words, elements. Peter uses a term in the Greek that means the basic units, the basic parts of matter. Elements refer to the basic components of creation. In other words, matter. And do you know what matter is? If you have a scientific background, you know this. Let me give it to you simply. Matter is particles in motion. 
most of what you see is space. It's hard to believe that, even harder if you try to go through it. <laughs> it looks solid, but it's not. Matter is particles in controlled motion. You learned that way back in your science classes somewhere. And he goes on, listen carefully. Science says motion requires time because as something moves from one place to another, there has to be time. It's here and it's there. And the fact that it was here and there demands the passage of time, even if it's only a fraction. You cannot have matter unless you have time because you cannot have motion unless something can move from one place to another and it can't move from one place to another unless there's the passage of time. No time, no motion. No motion, no matter. No matter, no elements. No elements, no creation. He writes, so when time ends... Creation as we know it ends, and you cannot have in the universe anything made up of particles in motion. So when the Word of God says heaven and earth passes away, when the Word of God says the elements dissolve and the universe goes out of existence, it is because time ends. Time began at the same time creation began. When time ends, creation goes out of existence. So the creation is uncreated and somewhere in timeless, spaceless presence, the great white throne appears. And before it, the dead, and there are no living people remaining because there's nowhere to be alive, that is, in physical form. There's no earth left. There's no universe. Nothing left. Everything is uncreated. So the godly have all been translated to the glory of God's presence and the ungodly are all gone out of the universe as we know it and now they appear all the ungodly in this scene end of quote the answer to our first question what happened to the heavens the earth they went out of existence they no longer exist now we come to our second question what is the significance of this great white throne and who is seated on it verse 11 again let me read it Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. This throne is described as being great, perhaps not so much as to emphasize its size, as to emphasize its awesome significance. The judgment that will be meted out from this throne will be incomprehensible in its absolute justice an eternal nature compared to all other judgments that have ever been handed down to man, even by God. The setting for this judgment is magnified even greater by the absence or total absence of heavens and earth. The entire created universe is gone. Its soberness is even more greatly magnified by this throne's being white, as well as by the one seated upon it as a formidable judge of all mankind. This one, who has already passed judgment upon Antichrist and the false prophet, and now as well upon Satan himself, is the judge. The fact that this throne is described as being white may very well be to accentuate the absolute purity and absolute holiness of the one sitting upon it who must administer, listen to me, absolute justice and retribution upon every and all sin as well as upon every sinner. To the fullest such absolute justice demands. But who is the one seated upon this great white throne? I think Daniel saw it. So we go to the statesman Daniel's testimony. He evidently saw this very same throne about 700 years before the Apostle John 
saw this throne. He writes in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And listen to these words. The court sat and the books were opened. As you continue reading Daniel's account, it becomes clear that the one upon the throne is God, the first person of the Trinity, because he is described as being the Ancient of Days and the one like the Son of Man approaches him. But let's give Jesus Christ's testimony to this account as well. Our Lord weighs in when we read his words in John 5, and 23, for here's what he said. For not even the Father judges anyone. But he has given all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Well, let's go back and let God the Father, let's get his testimony, God the Father's testimony. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, the Apostle Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to write these words. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. They should repent. Why? Because He has fixed a day. God has a calendar. He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. But how? Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So who is this one on this throne? This judge? I believe it is God in the person of his Son, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our third question. Who are the ones standing before the great white throne? Who are they? Let me read verses 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Who are the ones standing before this great white throne? Well, first they are the dead, the great, and the small. The first thing you need to know is that none of these that make up this mass of people comes from that first resurrection because every person who partakes in the first resurrection belongs to God. We're the redeemed. So no saved person, no person who put their faith in Jesus Christ is going to be at this great white throne judgment unless they're standing beside the judge as his redeemed. All their sins have already been dealt with. Their sins have all been judged by Jesus Christ or God judged Jesus in our behalf, I put it that way. These folks are from the second resurrection. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed, it says in verse 5 of Revelation 20. That's what we call the second re- re- resurrection. John 5, 28 and 29. Listen again to what Jesus says. John 5, 28 and 29. He spoke these words. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> An unsaved world that has no time for God, doesn't care for God, doesn't even believe in God, embraces evolution, doesn't understand that the voice of the Son of God is going to speak and they are going to come out of those tombs. We'll deal with that a little bit later on in just a minute. They will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, that's what the Bible describes as the first resurrection. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, that's the second resurrection of all the unsaved folk. All these folk who make up this second resurrection are described to the Apostle John as the dead, the great, and the small. Because every unsaved person who has ever lived, no matter their station or position in life, all the rich and powerful, as well as all the common and the poor, will be resurrected and will be standing before this great white throne to be judged by the one on that throne. Those who ruled and those who were subjects, all will be there. Let me illustrate it this way. Talked about the great and the small. You recall when God brought the judgments upon Egypt back in Moses' day? And that last judgment was the death angel that was going to kill the firstborn. And what did, who was it that the death angel killed? Well, Pharaoh lost his son, didn't he? But all those servants of Pharaohs that were out there in the field, they lost their firstborn. And every one that was incarcerated in his dungeon, if they had children, they lost their firstborn. That's what he's talking about. No one escapes this in this particular situation here. That's what he's talking about. And notice, they come as well out of the sea, as well as out of death and Hades. What does that mean? They come from out of the sea. What does that mean? Well, he means some died, namely, at sea. They were buried at sea. But their spirits don't actually come out of the ocean, dear ones, nor do they come out of the grave. You need to understand what he's saying here. Somewhat figurative language. They don't come out of the ocean. They don't come out of the grave. No, their spirits come out of Hades. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. They come out of Hades. Whether an unsaved person's dead body is placed in the ocean or in the ground, his spirit goes immediately to Hades, a temporary holding place of torment. Let's say for the sake of argument that Cain lived about 6,000 years ago. A long time ago. Where did Cain's spirit go when he died? It went to Hades. I believe Jesus helps us. Where is it right now? Well, Jesus helps us. Turn to Luke 16, 19-31. Let me read that. This is Jesus' words again. Luke 16, verses 19-30. Why I want to read this because this is where every unsaved person who's died is right now. This is where every unsaved person, by the time the service is over, a lot of people will be dead, and I don't mean you, hopefully. But around the world, a lot of people will be dead, and this is where their spirit will go, and we're going to read about it right now. You need to know that. This is not the lake of fire. This is a temporary holding place. Verses 19 to the end. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. 
and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. He was so bad off in his health, he couldn't even keep the dogs away that would lick his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's paradise. And the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. In Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will be, not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Who did come from the dead? Who did go from the dead? Lord Jesus Christ. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. What did we learn about Hades? I said, every unsaved person ends up there that dies. One of the things, somehow they have sight, don't they? He could see. Secondly is, he could be tormented. So much so he said, just a, just a tip of water, just let one, one drop, drop of water will, will make a difference. Also, it's a place of remembrance. He said, remember. And those people are remembering those opportunities they had to almost, but lost. And notice as well, it was a place where he said, I don't want any of my loved ones to come here. But this isn't even the worst. This is not even the worst. Who are the ones standing before the judge who is seated on this great white throne? They include every unsaved person ever born going all the way back to Adam and Eve. The only two unsaved persons not standing before this throne are the Antichrist and the false prophet. Why? Because they've already been judged and cast into that lake of fire. Now when the event of our text takes place, all those who have been in Hades in torment for however long are now brought up out of Hades and receive their final sentence. And you think about how long Cain has been there. Amazing. You know, we go through hard things here in the world. There's no doubt about it. Some people way, way far harder than others. People are tortured and so forth. It's nothing compared to this kind of a torment that God's talking about here. They're brought up out of Hades and they stand now before the judge of the whole universe. The glorified Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what frightening impact those words from Hebrews 10.31 must have on their hearts. I think of the people even down in Hades now and I have this premonition that they know they have yet an event where they're going to stand before the judge of all the earth. Hebrews 10.31 will have... A tremendous impact in each person standing before this judge of the universe. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Add to that Hebrews 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. That's what I'm personally convinced those people in Hades know they have an appointment. And they dread the horror of that appointment regardless of the suffering they're even going through in their torment right now. Surely this is where Philippians 2, 10, and 11 are fulfilled, people. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And why will that happen? To the glory of God the Father. That comes now to our fourth question. What is the significance of the books God will open in His final court? What is the significance of the books that God will open in His final court? Again, in verse 12 through 15, we're told books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And verse 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As we read earlier in Daniel 7, he saw these books about 700 years before John saw them. But what's the significance of these books? Well, first, they relate to God's absolute requirement of every man. They relate to God's requirement of absolutely, uh, 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 the absolute requirement of every man. And Jesus declared what that requirement is in Matthew 5, verse 48. Matthew 5, verse 48, Therefore you are to be Perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me ask you a question. How many sins did it take to bring death upon the human race? Just one. Think about that. Just one. And God declares of every one of us, listen to this, this is God's declaration, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Oh, we have our own way of seeking for Him. He's talking about coming by way of how He says He must be found. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. And He says, there is, listen to this, there is none who does good. Boy, the world can't, you know, a lot of Christians can't handle that. They think, well, no, we're, we, we try to live a good life. What he's talking about, the only goodness that God receives is that which is in his Son. He's the one that makes us a new creature. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and we yield ourselves to him, then when we do things, he rewards us for that. That goodness glorifies him, but anything that glorifies self is thrown out. There is none who does good. There's not even one. There, there, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Boy, that's not our culture today. I mean, most people would uh, just walk out. They wouldn't, have, they wouldn't even pay attention to this message. They wouldn't want to hear it. They say, I don't believe that. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter what I believe. It's what God says. Secondly, so they relate to God's absolute requirement of every man. Perfection. Absolute righteousness. We don't have it. We know that. Secondly, 
They relate to God's complete, listen to this, complete record on every man. This is absolutely frightening to me. It isn't just that people unsaved are going to stand before God. These books relate to the, God's complete record on every man. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, he said, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, listen, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God keeps a perfect and accurate record of every person's words, thoughts, acts, motives in his books. God also keeps a record of the total effects. This is staggering. He keeps a record of the total effects of one's words and actions and so forth. For example, you're by a large pond of water and it's perfectly still. You pick up a stone about the size of your fist and you throw it somewhat in the middle. And what happens? You have concentric circles, bigger and bigger, emanating out. And he said, that is what we're talking about here. It's a picture of your words, your motives, your behavior, acts, and the impact they have on everybody around you. Let me give an illustration. This is just one. There's many, many of them. But just one. Somebody puts out, promotes pornography. You know, big business today. We know it. Big business. They promote pornography. They don't care. They don't believe in God. So they promote pornography. God, being the absolute just judge, must mete out to that person's sentence, taking into full account all the lives and all the marriages and all the families, all the individuals that that person had affected by his act of producing pornography. At this great white throne judgment, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of such a living God. Listen to Romans chapter 2, 4 through 9. Again, this is God speaking to you, Paul. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? What's he saying? God says, I pour out my common grace upon this world of people. I let them live. I let them fall in love. I let them get married. I let them have children. I, let them, I, I, I give them good health. I let them enjoy the pleasures of this world. But he says, do they not understand that is, all of that is to bring them to repentance? And he goes on here. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, listen to this, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. He's talking about saved people there. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, they don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Boy, I tell you, I thank and praise God, and we sang those choruses or those hymns this morning, that He has provided a way of escape, dear ones. I am so thankful. When I was singing those songs, my heart was filled full of joy that there's now no more condemnation in Bill Walker because I put my faith in Him. I'm a sinner. 
I mean, there's no way that I could enter into the presence of such a holy God except He has completely forgiven me and clothed me with His Son's righteousness. It's an incredible thing to know that you're saved and forgiven and possess eternal life and you're one of God's children. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Isn't that wonderful? Having forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt. I owed a debt to righteous, holy God, consisting of decrees against us at His commandments, which was hostile to us because I couldn't keep them. And He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know, Micah 7.19 says, He's taken or will take your sins and He'll cast them into the depth of the sea. Isn't that good? I just read in Revelation 21, verse 1, there ain't going to be any more sea. Gone, gone, gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Amen. Thirdly, they relate to God's just punishment upon every man. They relate to God's absolute requirement of every man. They relate to God's complete record on every man. And now they relate to God's just punishment upon every man. Now we're going to go quickly through some scripture here, but listen, follow. Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, Whoever does not receive you, his disciples, he sent out, nor heed your words, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment, that means the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, than for that city. Matthew 11, verses 23 and verse 24, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. That's those people there that are going to die outside of Christ, which they did. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. God says, I keep account of everything, every opportunity that you've had, every response that you've made. I love Luke 12, 48. Luke 12, 48. And the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. You think about those people who've never heard the name of Jesus and they die in their sins. And yes, they end up in Hades and they'll end up in the lake of fire, but their torment will be far, far less than we Americans that have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they have entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. But what about that other book? What about that other book? He calls the book of life. In Daniel 12, 1, it may be a reference to that. Now that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. This is during the tribulation yet to come upon the world. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, there it is, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 talks about that book. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it, heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and esteem his name. I believe that's this book. Luke 10, 20, and this is the one I really love. Luke 10, 20, listen to what he says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice. He's talking to his Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Can you say that? 
Amen? How important that is for everyone in this room. Rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. Philippians 4.3 speaks about those whose names are in that book of life. Listen to Hebrews 12.23. Hebrews 12.23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Revelation chapter 3.5. We're in the book of Revelation now. Jesus' words to the church at Sardis. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. How precious. In Revelation 13, 8, it states that during the great tribulation, there's going to be those that are going to take that mark of Antichrist. And by the way, when you have a world and you can't eat, and your family can't eat because Satan and Antichrist controls the entire world economy and there's such devastation going on that there's hardly anything to, to be had. A lot of people will gladly take that mark to get food. But all who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Last week we talked a little bit about that. I, I, it's incomprehensible to me. I mean, it is completely incomprehensible to me that before God ever created the earth, he said, I wrote Bill Walker's name in that book. How could that be? What mercy, what amazing grace. One final mention besides our text here. Chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 27. It's talking about the celestial city of the New Jerusalem and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, the New Jerusalem, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And now we come to the last question. What is the final verdict and punishment every person standing before this great white throne will receive? Let's look first what God himself calls it. What does God call it? Listen and consider what God said to Moses. Boy, weigh this out. Listen to what he said to Moses. This is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It will not be on the wall behind me, but listen to it. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Now listen to what follows. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What does God call this final verdict, this final punishment? In Revelation 20, verse 10, verse 14 and 15, he calls it the second death. That doesn't mean you just die and go out of existence. We'll see that in a moment. He calls it the lake of fire. And you know, that's, that's rather just mind-boggling. A lake of fire. You watched the news this last week. You saw that boat, that yacht with those 36 people sleeping down below that could not get out and burned to death. Nothing compared to this lake of fire and what's going to happen to them there. Let's see now how Jesus describes it. I think his words and description are pretty important. How Jesus describes it. Matthew 25, 41. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Going back up to verse 30 of Matthew 25, he says, Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And folks, it never gets over. It goes on and on and on. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. Verses 9 through 11. This is written about those who will take that mark of Antichrist during that seven-year tribulation period. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, that's the Antichrist, and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead and on his, or on his hand, I said to you, it'll be a time when they will desperately want food, whatever else, to survive. And Antichrist is going to offer it. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Going back to Matthew 25, verse 46. And see just how important it is studying Scripture with Scripture. Matthew 25, verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment. What's eternal punishment? Look at the opposite. But the righteous into eternal life. Eternal life to me means forever and ever and ever. And that's what eternal punishment means as well. I've always said you can't get a hold of hell and the lake of fire unless you see what God had to do to His Son on that cross in order for you and me to be saved. You can't comprehend. People say, oh, a God of love. Listen, He's a God of justice as well. And His justice was satisfied at the cross. And when people turn that down, then they have to pay the price themselves and it can never be paid. Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, I say to you, my friend, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear Him. And what do we read in that last verse there? Revelation 20, 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Almost. Almost. But lost. Will that be you? Our Heavenly Father, this is the hardest passage, I think, in all of the Bible, and that's just about how the Bible ends. 
And it's how, or the ending, if I can say that, to all the unsaved people, and how foolish we are with this little vapor of time called our life that you allow us to live and expend. We don't even know how it's going to be taken. And when we end it. But the devil deceives us. We think we're okay. We think that, uh, you know, I've got a lot of life in front of me and I want to enjoy life and somehow I'm going to be shortchanged if I put my faith in Jesus Christ and start living for him. And one after another, Lord, these people end up dying, never expecting necessarily that it's going to happen so suddenly or how it's going to happen. And they find themselves in Hades and what dread. Knowing that they're going to be taken out of there and they're going to stand at this great white throne judgment and there is absolutely nothing and no one who can save them or deliver them. Because you are the just judge of the whole universe. And sin must be punished. We think light of it. But when you come to Revelation 20, 11 through 15, there's no place to think lightly of sin. Every sinner needs to come and say, Oh, Jesus Christ, come into my heart and save me. This is frightening business. This is real. I want to be saved. I want my name written in that Lamb's book of life. I acknowledge I am a sinner. And now I see that because of my sin, you being a just God, yes, you're a God of love, and that's why you sent your son to the cross, but you being a just God, you will demand full punishment for my sin. But now I praise you that God, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ came and He bore all my sin and He bore all these dear people's sins and He bore our just punishment as well and cried out at the end, it is finished, paid in full for those who will simply come and receive Him as their Savior and Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, You know every heart. Work, I pray, as we close this service in Jesus' name, amen.